I'm going to invite you, if you would, to stand for the reading of God's Word. This is from Romans chapter 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Our kids can be dismissed. Uh, There's programming down the hall for them, and we are so glad that you are here once again for our worship today. What we're doing today is concluding a series that we have been uh, in for a few weeks now where we've been looking at some prayers that we can pray that God will always say yes to. He, He won't say well, maybe. He won't say not now. He won't say no. These are not prayers he says yes to sometimes or most times or once in a while. These are prayers God says yes to all the time. And the bonus is that we've discovered these little prayers are all just a few words long, right? And so there's no excuse for any of us not to be praying. God, teach me to pray. That was one. Lord, save me. That's an easy prayer. God, get me through this. God, give me wisdom. Last week we talked about God, forgive me. And the challenge is to begin to pray those little prayers and just sit back and just watch what happens, what God, the good Father, does in your life as a result. And so that brings us to today's prayer, the way we wrap up this series. And this prayer is not so much a request as it is a reminder. It's not a petition of God. Instead, it's an anchor line into the promises of God. There's a guy named E. Stanley Jones, and he explains prayer this way. He says, if I am out in a boat and I throw a boat hook from the boat to catch hold of the shore and pull on the rope, What happens? As I pull on that rope, am I pulling the shore to me or am I pulling myself to the shore? Well, the answer is pretty obvious, right? I mean, we're not pulling the earth. We're pulling ourselves to the shore. And he says prayer is exactly the same way. Prayer is not about pulling God to my will. Prayer is about the aligning of my will to the will of God. And so I want you to think about the prayers that normally roll off our our tongues. What are they like? Usually, we ask God to bend his will to ours. Uh, there's There's an old song, give me this, I want that. Bless me, Lord, I pray. Grant me what I think I need to make it through the day. Make me wealthy, keep me healthy, fill in what I missed on my never ending shopping list. That's our prayer. That's how they usually go, if we're honest. Jesus, even in his greatest prayer, said this, your will be done, not mine. 
That's how he taught us to pray. God, not what I want, but what you want. And so this prayer, when I roll it out to you, it's going to sound like a request. Give me, give me this, God. But in reality, this prayer is like throwing a boat hook to the shore in order to pull ourselves closer to God. It's a prayer that has at its heart a desire to align my will with his purposes for my life. It's a prayer for his kingdom to come, and his kingdom is always, always good. And so, what is the prayer? Well, the prayer is embedded in a verse that was in the middle of, of the passage that we just read from Romans chapter 8. It's a very familiar verse, even if you haven't been the most church-going person in the world. It's Romans 8.28. I want you to read it with me. Here it is. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And it's in that familiar verse that we get to form this prayer. God, bring good out of this. There it is. No matter what just happened, no matter what we are about to face, no matter what we are about to walk into, here's the prayer. God, bring good out of this. Now, that's a simple little prayer. And when you can begin to pray that prayer so that you're not trying to get something from God, but instead you're trying to just pull yourself closer to God, then some amazing things become true. Let me explore just a few of them. Here's the first one. Your life, when you start praying this prayer, will be right even when it isn't. Your life will be right even when it isn't. One of the greatest biblical studies in suffering and enduring of trials has to be the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. In the Old Testament, Joseph, uh, we learn, is an arrogant young man who is hated by his brothers. He has 11 of them, and so uh, the hate was large, right? And he was not only arrogant in their eyes, but he was also prized by his father more than all of the other brothers. His father was named Jacob, and Jacob loved Joseph more than all of the other sons. And so when the opportunity came, their anger towards Joseph turned into punishment. They saw an opportunity one day, and they decided to throw Joseph in a pit, and they were going to kill him, but they decided instead to sell him to some traders who ended up taking him to Egypt, into a life of slavery, into a life of misery. And there's no doubt, there's no doubt that while Joseph was in that pit that his brothers had thrown him in, he cried out to God and he said, help me, save me. And here was his answer. And into slavery he went. He experienced years of bondage and ministry. He was even thrown in prison. And you can read all about Joseph's story. It's an amazing story. But in those years of trial and tribulation, Joseph's character is refined and is, and is strengthened by those trials. And eventually, his path winds its way so that he becomes prime minister of Egypt. It's an amazing story. 
He's able then to save thousands of lives, probably millions of lives, in the middle of a worldwide famine. And finally, he's even able to save his own family from starvation. The very brothers who threw him in the pit now have to come to him for grain to eat. And he is able to save them himself. At the end of their father Jacob's life, Jacob's brothers uh, are a little worried. They realize they've all been kind of reunited and they've been saved by the hand of Joseph, but dad is still alive. Jacob's still alive. And so now that dad is gone, the brothers conclude, no, 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 wait, here it is. Joseph is surely going to get even with us. He's going to punish us for all of those things we did to him to cause the life of suffering that he's had. And so what they do is they get together and they write a little note as if their father Jacob had written it. It's a little post-mortem note. And it says something to the effect of, please forgive your brother's dad. And they hand it to Joseph. And he reads it. And he weeps. He calls his brothers in. And in one of the greater lines of scripture, he says this. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Do you see our prayer hiding in that line. The point of the whole story of Joseph is that had God not allowed Joseph's years of suffering, he never would have been able to rise to such a position where he was a powerful agent for life and justice and and healing. He never would have been able to save his own family without first going through all of those tremendous trials. What you meant for evil, this is what he's able to say at at the end of it all, after everything is right. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. At some point in the life of Joseph, he was able to look back and he was able to see that even though it wasn't what he wanted at the time, I mean, he was thrown into a pit, he was thrown into prison. Pits and prisons are not on anybody's bucket list. And yet he could see that even those times allowed him to get to the place where he needed to be in order to save millions of people, even his own brothers. Joseph could look over his life and say, my life was right, even when it wasn't. God was working the whole way, even in the pit, even in the prison. And at some point, he realized this and could pray and trust that God was always working to bring good out of his circumstances. Many people, many of us, have been thrown in the pit. And we've experienced prisons in our life. And some of us, when that happens, we have a tendency to shake our fist and blame God. But this prayer from Romans 8 that we also see in Genesis chapter 50 in the story of Joseph gives us another option. There is another option besides, oh, how dare you, God? I'm, I'm, I'm going to turn my back on you. There's another option, and this is it. See, if you have a great God transcendent enough to be mad at and shake your fist at because he hasn't stopped the evil and suffering in your life, then you have at the very same time a God who is also great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing the suffering to continue that you cannot possibly know. Most of us who have lived uh, even a few heartbeats can see that this is true even in our own lives. We, We can look back at some pain that we've had to go through 
and we can count at least a few good reasons that came out of it. Man, I was, I was fired. I didn't want to be fired from my job, but man, if I hadn't been fired, I never would have started my own thing, and that has been the greatest thing ever. There are stories like that for all of us. And see, even if even we can see the good that results from trouble with our limited human vantage point, then why couldn't it at least be possible that God, who knows everything and has a limitless vantage point, has good reasons for every trouble? Corey Tinboom puts it very simply. She just says this. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and you trust the engineer. It might be dark in your life. Trust the engineer because the train is taking you to good. That's the promise. When we can pray, God, bring good from this, it's a reminder that our life will be right even when it isn't. Even in the pits, even in the prisons, even in the dark tunnels of life, they will all work out for good. Here's another thing that we know from this verse. Uh, when you can pray this prayer, God bring good out of this, it's a reminder to yourself that you will never make it worse. <laughs> I love this one. And I think you'll take great comfort in it too. Here's what Paul writes. He says, it's in all things, all things, that God works together for good. Now, I did some intense research on the Greek word for all this week, and here's what it means. Are you ready? It means all. That's what it means. All means all. And so all things includes circumstances we can't control, right? And that's usually what we're refer referencing when we use this verse. Uh, we uttered this verse, well, God works everything for good. Um, after the tornado, right? We say this verse. When we are uh, dealing with coronavirus, we use this verse. When we are at a graveside, we use this verse. Well, God works all things for good, and it's a good promise. But don't skip over the word all. All means all. And so it's more than just the storms that we can't control. It's also what we can control. All things then means our missteps and our intentional failures and our backsliding. There's an ancient word. And our sin. Our sin. This prayer is a reminder that God will work even in our sin for the ultimate good. And that idea is pretty, ex it's the exploding head emoji for me. I need about seven of them in the text. Because what we expect to read when we come to this passage is that God takes our good things that we are able to muster up in our life and he just makes more good out of our good things. That's the American way, right? When you do good, God will do more good. That's not the line. The line is, he works for good in all things. And that includes even your sin. 
Now, I want you to hear me. This is not a call to dismiss the sin in your life as if it's okay. It's not. It never is. Sin is always bad. It's always terrible. It's always painful. It always leads to death. We cannot avoid the consequences of our sin. If you get in a fist fight, you're probably going to get a black eye. There's no way around that. We will always have consequences and regret from our sin. And yet, God is so great that he weaves even our failures into ultimate good. He works through sin to humble us, to teach us a right view of ourselves, to have us a greater appreciation for Christ. He works through our sin to show us our weakness, to show us our frailty. And he even works through our sin to save people. It's absolutely true. There is a crazy, bewildering story that doesn't get a lot of sermon time in the Old Testament uh, because it's just too far out there. Um, let's say it like it is. It's not a G-rated film. And so let me take a swing today, okay? <laughs> There's a guy named Lot. And Lot and his family have to flee from a city uh, named, uh, area named Sodom and Gomorrah because God is going to destroy this area. And as they are fleeing, Lot and his family are told not to look back at all from the city and the area that they're fleeing from. Well, life, uh, Lot's, Lot's wife does look back, and she's turned into a pillar of salt. And so Lot and his daughters now are alone. They escape, and now they're living in the hills uh, and, and the caves because Lot is afraid for his life, and the daughters are looking around. And they determine, well, there, there aren't any men to take as husbands. And so they look at their father. Yeah, that, that's, the, that's the crazy part. And they feel that there is no other option. And so they each in turn give their father lot wine until he's drunk, until he's clueless. And then they preserve their family line through their father. Now, your social media feed right now has some scandals that you can hardly fathom, but that's another level, is it not? And the text says that there are two sons that are born, one to each of Lot's daughters. One of those sons becomes the father of the Moabites, and the other becomes the father of the Ammonites. And both of those groups of people became enemies of God's people, the Israelites. It's in Genesis 19. You can read it. Now, I want you to fast forward to the book of Ruth. When we are introduced to this character named Ruth, the first thing we learn is that she is a Moabite. Ruth is an outsider who's included in God's family, the Israelites, and she has this incredible story, and it's too long for our purposes here, but she marries a guy named Boaz, who is her kinsman, redeemer, and it just means that Boaz helps her out of her poverty and out of her destitution and provides for her and cares for her and loves, for, loves her, and the two are eventually married, and uh, they have a son named Obed, and Obed has a son named Jesse. And Jesse then has a son named David, as in King David, as in the guy that we talked about last week with his prayer in Psalm 32, God, forgive me. Now, why is this all important? Well, when we get to the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew records a genealogy of all the fathers and sons from David, 
all the way down to a guy named Joseph, who just happens to be the human father of Jesus, the Christ, and the Savior of the world. Now, I want you to connect all of those dots. The reason that Jesus Christ is born from heaven onto planet Earth and lived a perfect life and sacrifices that life on a cross in order to save you today is because two girls slept with their dad. If Genesis 19 doesn't happen, Jesus doesn't happen. And so listen, if God can take the total indecency of Lot's daughters and turn it into a savior being born into the world to save it from the very indecency that he came from, then good grief. What can you possibly manage to mess up in your life that God won't be able to work out? All things work together. God even works through your sin. God is the one in charge of the future. God is the one who is overruling every misstep you take and turning it into good despite your efforts to the contrary. And so here's what you get to do. You get to do your best at life. And even when you mess up, you get to relax. Because if God is working for good, then you'll never make the good he's working for worse. It's impossible. Next, when we pray, God bring good from this. We pull ourselves a little closer to God because we know that everything will be turned for good. Everything will be turned for good. We can be sure that all things work together for good uh, to those who love God, even though we hardly ever see how. Uh, Tim Keller is a huge voice in Christianity um, today. And there's no doubt that there are many even in this room who have been influenced by one of his books or some of his sermons or some of his teachings. He is, he's a big deal in Christianity. He's just, he's so logical and he's so able to apply the gospel to any life situation and tell you why the gospel is indispensable. It's, it's amazing. I love reading him. I love listening to him. And there's a reason that he was able to plant a church even in New York City and who's, you know, and have that church's ministry not only explode over that city that is, that is anything but kind to Christianity, but even the world. And so I read about Keller telling his church in New York how their church came to be. I want to share this with you. He said this. He said, do you know why we're here tonight? There are a lot of reasons. All kinds of people have done so much to make this ministry and this church happen. But we could certainly say if Kathy and I had not come to New York 18 years ago or so to start the church, none of this would be here. Well, why? What's the reason we came to New York to start a church? It's because we joined a Presbyterian denomination that not only encouraged us, but gave us the freedom to set a priority for church planting. Well, why were we a member of that particular denomination? It's because in my last semester at seminary, I took two courses with a professor who convinced me that I was theologically a Presbyterian. And that's the reason I went into this denomination. That's the reason why I planted the church. But why did I take those two courses? It's because at the very last minute, this man was able to come and teach those courses in spite of the fact that there was a big bureaucratic snag at the top that was keeping him from getting his visa. See, he was British, 
And the only reason he came and taught those courses, the only reason I changed my theological views, the only reason I joined the Presbyterian denomination, and the only reason that I planted this church, and the only reason we're here tonight is because this bureaucratic snag was suddenly opened up at the last minute, and he was able to get there in time to teach me those courses. Well, what opened the snag? What happened? And the answer is that one morning the dean was praying and saying, I don't know how we're going to get this guy here in order to teach these courses this semester. And his prayer partner at the time was a young man who was a student in the cemetery and also happened to be one of the sons of the sitting president of the United States at the time, who was Gerald Ford. And when he said to the dean, what are you praying about? And the dean told him, he said, well, you know, I know a guy. He might be able to help. And he did. It worked. So why did he have the power to get rid of that snag? So that the man could come, so that I could have the course, so that I could change my views, so that I could join the Presbyterian church, so that I come and plant this church, so that we could be here tonight. Only because Nixon resigned. Gerald Ford never, ever, ever, ever would have been president unless Nixon resigned. But it goes further. Why did Nixon have to resign? Because of the Watergate scandal. Why did the Watergate scandal happen? Because the people who were bugging the Democratic Party's offices, they bugged it, they left a door open. And because the night watchman noticed that that door was a little open, he went in and it was all discovered. If that door had been just closed two more inches, then we wouldn't be here tonight. That's what he tells his people. Everything would have been changed. And he says to his church, I have a question. Do you think that happened by accident? That that guy kept the door open instead of closing it. All he had to do was pull it shut or turn around and say, is that door closed? Let's make that door, make sure that door's closed. But he didn't. Do you think that happened by accident? All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And he says to his church, even Watergate happened for you. Very seldom, very seldom. Do we get to see even a millionth of a millionth of a glimpse of how God is working all things together for good to those who love God? But he is. He is. And when we can pray, God, bring good from this. When you can pray that, what you're doing is you're resting in the promise that no matter what bad stuff is happening inside you, no matter what bad stuff is happening outside you, he has not abandoned you, he loves you, and good will come. Everything will be turned for good. And let me tell you why good will always come. Let me tell you why the answer to this prayer, God bring good from this, is always yes. It's very, very simple. It's because God took responsibility for the death of his own son. People try to determine all the time, who killed Jesus? Did the Romans kill Jesus? Did the Jews kill Jesus? Did you kill Jesus? Did I kill Jesus? Did we all kill Jesus? Do you know what the scripture says? God killed Jesus. That's what it says. And not only did God do it, he takes full responsibility for it. If we listed today the greatest tragedies in the history of the world and laid them all out on the table, there would be some, definitely some doozies. 
You realize today is 9-11, right? It's Patriot Day. 21 years ago, one of those tragedies occurred. And we could lay out dozens of tragedies like that. And we might have a hard time deciding which tragedy is worse in the world. There is no debate. The greatest tragedy by far in the history of the world is that God himself came into this world and our response to that was to kill him. Our response to that was to nail him to a cross. Lot's daughters don't hold a candle to that level of atrocity. And yet, from this greatest disaster that the world has ever known, what did God do? He worked for good. God brought life from the death of his only son, Jesus. God brought victory out of defeat. God turned the greatest tragedy in the history of the world into the most comprehensive victory ever known, which is salvation for everyone who wants it. And so if he can do that, then here it is. He's perfectly capable of doing great and good things with my small little sufferings that are happening in this life. God, bring good out of this. His answer will always be, yes. Yes. Look at the cross. I already have. Now, I need to point out today as we end that there are qualifications that have to be met in order to pray this prayer. Not everybody gets to pray, God bring good out of this. That's the reality. You have to be in a certain club to be able to claim this promise and pray, God bring good out of this. Here's what Paul writes. He says, you have to be one of those who love him. That's the first qualifier. There's another qualifier. In order to pray this prayer, you have to be one of those who have been called according to his purpose. Loving and calling are words that imply a relationship. So the only people who get to pray this prayer and claim the promise that all things will work for good are those who love God and who are called by God. They are those who have been brought into a relationship with God through Jesus. Is that you today? And if not, why not? Here is God wanting to work for your good, for your salvation. It seems illogical that you wouldn't respond to that kind of love that only wants the best for you. And you are being called into that love right now. That's the invitation today. Would you give your life to Jesus who gave his life for you so that in the end all will be well? Without Jesus, there is no good. With Jesus, there's nothing but good. And we get to choose the good today. God, I thank you for Jesus and what he offers us here, that he offers us a relationship with you. And he offers us a way that no matter what happens to us, no matter the pit that we're, getting, we're, we're thrown into, no matter the prison that we're thrown into, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, God will turn it to good. And the proof of that is Jesus hanging on a cross and three days later walking out of a tomb to give us life. Let us hold to that hope. God, bring good out of this. 
we thank you that your answer is always yes. Yes.